This conversation from the Augusta Golf Show is brought to you by Gerald Jones Audi, online at AugustaAudi.com. Well, John Feinstein is a columnist for The Washington Post, the author of more than 35 books, including a pair of number one New York Times bestsellers, A Season on the Brink, and A Good Walk Spoiled. Always a pleasure to welcome John Feinstein back to the Augusta Golf Show. Hi, John. Hi, Ed. John, uh, belated Happy New Year. Good to talk to you. Same to you. Um, what are you working on? Is there a book in the works? Yes, I'm glad you asked. I actually have a book coming out right around the 1st of March. Uh, it's called The Back Roads to March, and it's about um, uh, players, coaches, teams in college basketball that aren't on ESPN every 15 minutes that you probably have either never heard of or only vaguely heard of. Um, it kind of thing I like to do, sort of like the equivalent of my golf Q school book. Um, had a great time writing it, and I'm very happy that the first two pre-publication reviews from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly have been raved. So that's that's a nice start. But you love that. I mean, I, you I love you love you love the unheralded football teams, the unheralded basketball team. You you just really gravitate toward that, don't you? No, I really do. I mean, I obviously I've written about the rich and the famous and all the sports that I've covered uh, and and found that a different sort of challenge. But I, I go back to my days as a night police reporter at the Washington Post when Bob Woodward was my editor. And one night there was a, uh, I was the night police, as I said, I was a night police reporter. One night there was, a, there was a, a crash involving three people, a car crash. Nobody died. So it was only like a three, four paragraph story. And it involved a guy who'd fallen asleep at the wheel at three in the morning, crossed the median, and crashed into a car with two people coming the opposite way. And I came in the next morning, and Woodward said to me, you know, there'd be a great story there if you could get those three people to tell you what was going on in their lives at that moment and why they were in that place. And so I went, when Woodward said, do something, you did something, I went to the hospital. In those days, you could just walk in and say, you know, what room is John Patrick in? And they tell you. Right. So I, I was able to talk to all three of them. It turned out the guy who'd fallen asleep at the wheel was a Howard University law student who was studying for finals and was driving back to his apartment to take a shower and get a couple hours sleep when he fell asleep at the wheel. The couple in the other car had just learned that she was pregnant with their first child, and they were holding hands and saying a prayer of thanks when the collision occurred. Thank God the baby lived. Everybody was okay. But the story ended up on the front page. And the lesson learned from, by me from Bob Woodward was you don't have to be rich and famous to have a story to tell. That a lot of people who aren't rich and famous have fascinating stories to tell. And, and that's, that's guided me in many ways throughout my career. Well, who was it? Uh, somebody at a network. Was it Charles Corral? Somebody used to throw a dart at a, at a spot in the country and then, then, then just go tell the story. Yeah, what? that sounds like Corralt since his his his, yeah, he uh, being on the road. his pieces were titled on the road. So yeah, yeah that sounds and 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 he was right. And um, there, there, there's all sorts of proof of that. It's not like I'm the only person who's ever done that, but it it's been important in my life. And this book was I I had so much fun. I'll tell you one quick story, and I know we need to get to golf, but uh, one of the guys I wrote about is is a guy named Griff Aldrich who played Division three basketball. He was a teammate of Ryan Odom, who, of course, became famous when UMBC upset Virginia two years ago. And Griff graduated, went to law school, uh, and became a very wealthy lawyer in Houston. He was making close to a million dollars a year, but still loved basketball. Coached a small AAU team on the side, 
uh, at, at a local church, adopted three kids because he and his wife couldn't have children. He, had, he has three young kids. And when Ryan got the UMBC job, he called his old friend and said, you know what, I, I want to coach basketball. I'm 42 years old, and I've never done what I really wanted to do. So Ryan offered him a job as director of basketball operations for $32,000 a year, which was about a $900,000 <laughs> cut in pay. Mm-hmm. And Griff took the job, moved his family from Houston to Baltimore, and two years later was offered the job at Longwood University, which is in, in, in central Virginia. And he's now the head coach at Longwood. And during the research of this book, I went down to spend a day with him. They were playing High Point, which is now coached by Tubby Smith, who you may remember sure. won the national championship at Kentucky. Sure, former Georgia years coach. Ago. Former Georgia and, coach. Uh, I and I, while I was at the game, my wife Christine texted me and said, I, I forget where you are. When are you coming home tonight? And I wrote back, I said, I am, um, I am in um, Maryville, Virginia. Uh, I'll be home about midnight. And she wrote me back and said, you are having an affair. There's no such place as Maryville, Virginia. <laughs> and there is, in fact, such a place. And uh, that was one of the stories that, that I love doing during this book. Uh, and I love each and every one of them. And I love that you love that. Um, good for you. Good for you. We're talking with John Feinstein here on the... Now we're going to talk about someone who is rich and famous. Yes, we are. Uh, uh, Jack Nicholas turned 80 this week. Um, you've done a book on Arnold. Have you ever thought about doing a book on Jack? Well, no. And to be honest, the book I did on Arnold was, was, was really uh, the, the, the great uh, photographer, Walter Yost, had kept all these photos of Arnold that he'd taken for probably 40 years. And he and his agent came to me and said, Walter wants to put these all in a book, but we need a text. We need someone to write a text. And to me, working with Walter Yost was an honor. So I happily said I would do it, and I, it, I did it. If you, it's kind of a quickie book. Mm. Um, it's not like most of my books, which I, I try to deeply research. Uh, and there have been so many books done on Jack that I feel like, again, it's one of those deals where I feel as if almost anybody who's covered golf can write a book on Jack if they want to put in the work. The kind of books I like to do are the books that nobody else is thinking about doing. Okay. But that, that's not meant to disrespect Jack in any way. Do you remember the first time you met him? Yes, vividly. Um, it, was, it was when I was working on A Good Walk Spoiled. And I had been trying to go through Larry O'Brien, his son Andy O'Brien, uh, to set up an interview with Jack because you can't write a book about golf life on the PGA tour without writing about Jack Nicholas. And you know how easy Arnold was to get an interview with. I just went to doc Giffen. I made a request and that Sunday morning I was sitting in Arnold's house having breakfast with him. Jack can be more difficult, (laughs) especially if he doesn't know you. And of course he didn't know me from Adam. So after several months of getting nowhere, I finally decided at the memorial after he gave his state of the memorial press conference sure. to just introduce myself and tell him what I needed. It's always harder to say no to somebody when they're standing in front of you. So I walked up, I introduced myself, Andy was standing right there, and uh, I said I was doing a book on life on the PGA Tour and I would love to talk to him at some point. And Jack looked at me and he said, well, how much time do you need? Which, as you know, is the athlete's first question most of the time. Yep. And I said, well, I don't know, about an hour. Of course, I wanted more. I said, about an hour. And he started laughing. <laughs> and he said, I've never given anyone an hour in my entire life. 
John, you know that Jack can take an hour to answer one question <laughs> and, and has given people hours and hours. So I said, okay, I understand, no problem, and I started to walk away. And he said, where are you going? And I said, well, you, you said uh, you'd never given anybody an hour in your entire life. And he said, yeah, but I didn't say no. <laughs> and so he said, talk to Andy, we'll set it up. Long story short, my last week out before I went to write was the PGA in Tulsa that year. And I still hadn't heard anything back. So I asked Ken Kennerly, who you know, mm-hmm. who's now the director of the Honda Classic, who was working for Nicholas at the time, is this going to happen? And Ken came back to me the next day and says, well, Jack says he'll do it, but you need, he'll do it on the plane going back to Palm Beach after the tournament. And I said, well, what if he misses the cut? He said, well, it's up to you. Well, it was Jack Nicholas. So, of course, I committed to doing it. And Jack shot 80 on Thursday. And I was sitting in the locker room with my good friend, Jeff Sluman, and I was telling him how it looked like I, who had played with Nicholas that day, how I was going to probably have to get on a plane Friday night, fly with Jack to Palm Beach, then get up at four in the morning the next day to get back to Tulsa. And Jack walks up and, and he says, uh, he says, oh, so you're going to go with us tomorrow, right? And I said, well, if you miss the cut. And, and he says, yeah, I might shoot 58 tomorrow and make the cut. And, uh, and I said, well, yes, uh, should I just meet you right after the round? He said, yes. Jeff looks at me and goes, so what time are you going to have to get up on Saturday to get back here? And I said, about four in the morning. And uh, Jack looked at me and he said, well, if that's the case, wouldn't it be easier for you if we did it here? And I, was, I said, yes. <laughs> and um, so uh, he said, well, why don't you just come to the house we're renting at four o'clock this afternoon? We'll talk then. Great. So I went. He gave me four hours, John. Wow. And at the end of the interview, he said, well, now that I know you, anytime you need anything, just call me. And the, the, the funny addendum to the story is that a couple of years later, when I started the research on the majors and obviously needed to talk to Jack, I grabbed him at the British Open one day, told him what I was doing. He said, yeah, sure. He, first thing he said was, John, have I ever denied you anything? <laughs> and I said, no, of course not. And six months later, again, I still hadn't been able to pin him down. And I ran into he and Barbara in the lobby at Doral early one morning. And I said, hey, Jack, I, I really need to try to pin you down because time's starting to get away from me for this book on the majors. And Jack, being Jack, went, ha ha, good luck with that. At which point, Barbara punched him in the shoulder and said, you tell him when you're going to talk to him right now. So naturally, I talked to him the next day. Naturally. Naturally. Uh, I love I love each and every one of those stories, and they're so Jack, each and every they one of them. They are so are Jack and so Barbara. Jack and Barbara. Um, where were you in 86 when he won the Masters? You know where I was? Um, I was at a birthday party. I wasn't covering golf at that point in my life. I was at a birthday party for the great Washington Post columnist Ken Denlinger, who, who cover, covered the Masters. Uh, forever, and it was his 50th birthday, so his wife had convinced him to stay home that weekend, and she threw him a, a surprise party on Sunday, and we got there, we said surprise, and then we all sat around and watched Jack in awe. When did you, when did you start covering the Masters? Well, I covered golf on occasion for the Post during the 80s. I covered a U.S. Open at the one David Graham won, because uh, Tom Boswell, who was the Mm-hmm. Uh, golf rider was tied up with a baseball strike. I covered uh, several British Opens because I was already over there for Wimbledon. But I didn't really start covering golf on a regular basis until 1993 when I started the research for A Good Walk Spoiled. Okay. 
Well, since we're all over the road, and I love that we're all over the road with this conversation, I don't think I've ever asked you this. Who's who's the greatest athlete you ever saw? It's a great question. Um, The greatest athlete I ever saw. Well, it's funny because people do different things. Michael Phelps is the greatest swimmer ever, Mm -hmm. and I'm an old swimmer, so I, I tend to look at him in awe. Um, I saw Carl Lewis when he won the four gold medals uh, at the 84 Olympics, and that was extraordinary. Um, The best basketball player I ever saw, uh, most dominant, let me put it that way, was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Michael Jordan was the most extraordinary because of the things he did, but Abdul-Jabbar was the most dominant. I didn't see Bill Russell, uh, who was the greatest winner of all time in basketball. Um, John McEnroe was the most naturally gifted tennis player I ever saw, though obviously he's been outstripped by Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic by a lot, and Pete Sampras in terms of major titles. But McEnroe, when he was at his best, was just ridiculous to to watch. My good friend Mary Carrillo, who grew up with John, tells a story that when she was 12 and he was 10, She'd been able to compete with him because she was a couple years older. And they went out and played one day, and Mary could, couldn't win a point. And John was hitting all these touchy-feely shots all over the place. And when they finished, she looked at John and said, you know what? Someday you're going to be the number one tennis player in the world. And John looked at her and said, shut up. <laughs> um, but it, it's hard because people have different skills to say one person was the most extraordinary you've ever seen. And, and one other guy I'll, I'll bring up, even though he's, he's not an all-time great because of um, uh, his, his problems he had with drugs, Dwight Gooden, when he was a young pitcher with the Mets, was uh, so incredibly dominant. I remember sitting with my dad in, in, in our living room one night watching Gooden pitch when he was a rookie, when he was 19, and he kept throwing all these unhittable pitches. And finally I screamed out, oh, my God. And my dad, who was not a baseball fan, looked at me and said, what are you yelling about? And I said, watch. And he did, and he was odd, too. You meant, When you mentioned Dwight Gooden, what I think about when you talk about Dwight and his foibles and his troubles, what about David Thompson? Yes, uh, another one. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did see David play in college at mm-hmm. NC State, um, and he was the most gifted offensive player I ever saw. Jordan was a better all-around player because Jordan was great on defense. David never guarded anybody. Um, mm. But he certainly uh, should have been one of the five greatest players of all time, if not for his drug problems, because he was amazing. I saw him get injured in the uh, 1974 regional final against Pittsburgh. I was a college freshman and managed to sneak my way in. And um, he got injured and, and because he went over teammate Phil Spence, who was 6'8", and his feet hit Spence's shoulders <laughs> as he went over him. So picture how high up he was at that moment. Uh, I love this. Thank you. Who didn't vote for Jeter, by the way? Uh, we'll find out. I think we. I hope we. I hope whomever it was doesn't hide out and at least stands up behind his or her vote. I, I as someone who's had the privilege of voting for halls of fame uh, and who votes in the AP basketball poll now, I think if you have the privilege of voting for something like that, you should be willing to publicly stand behind your vote because it is a privilege. And if this person felt for whatever reason they didn't want to vote for Jeter. Uh, they should come forward, say so, and explain why. And, and apparently they voted for Mariano Rivera. 
I, uh, well, we, we're assuming this person was a voter two years ago. Okay, okay. We can't know for sure no. if they were. And, you know, for years, uh, there were people who wouldn't vote for sure. guys their first, first time on the Hall of Fame. Yep. A ballot. They just didn't. They, they had. They, I remember Bill Conlon, who I worked with for years uh, on sports reporters, uh, would never vote for anybody their first year on the ballot. I thought that was ridiculous. You're a Hall of Famer. You're not a Hall of Famer. Um, and... Uh, and and that's gone away for the most part. Obviously, Rivera getting in unanimously is proof of that. And Griffey got ninety nine point three percent. Jeter only failed to get one vote. But my God, I mean, there's some, some guys. You know, I remember years ago Eddie Murray told me he didn't think he'd get in the Hall of Fame on the first ballot because the media didn't like him, and he was right. The media didn't like him, but he got in overwhelmingly on the first ballot because his numbers were overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it should be. Now, baseball, let me throw this caveat in on the steroid users, because baseball's ballot, as I said, I used to vote. The Washington Post doesn't let us vote anymore. Baseball's ballot has a character clause. The Pro Football Hall of Fame doesn't. And if, if there's a character clause, then you can't let a cheater into the Hall of Fame, a known cheater. And there are people who say to me, well, you know, people said Piazza might have been a steroid user, that uh, Carlton Fisk might have been a steroid user, but there, there was never any overwhelming proof. In the case of Bonds, Clemens, Sosa, McGuire, Palmero, there's overwhelming proof, whether, whether there's a, a test or not, there's overwhelming proof. It's not a court of law. Circumstantial evidence is enough. And I don't, I don't think those guys belong in the Hall of Fame. But if you're talking about a Derek Jeter... You know, clearly, there, anybody who doesn't vote for him either isn't watching, doesn't understand baseball, or is just doing something to get attention. He is John Feinstein. I, I couldn't be happier that we that we had this conversation and it went in all of these directions and we <laughs> and we snuck some golf in. John, I always appreciate it. Thank you, thank you for doing this. John, always fun to talk to you. Uh, I hope I'll talk to you before Augusta. <laughs>